0: All right everyone. you guys ready to start? It's been a minute since we've seen each other. So glad to have you here. Some of you, this is your first time at Roos Chris Bible study. is this your first time It is not. So we're going to do some housekeeping real quick. Um, the way we do this is food usually comes out right around 12. You are free to come eat. Uh, socialize we encourage you meet new people don't just huddle together you know if you see somebody new say hello it's all about being welcoming and Christian-like the tip jar here every week this goes straight to the people in the back that prepare the food so if you like the food it's free you don't have to give anything the tip lets them know you appreciate it so people ask how much should I give I tell them how much you think it's worth how much you can afford if God's blessed you with a lot give a lot if you're struggling give a little but uh, either way, we're glad you're here. And um, if you, so this all goes to them. I don't see any of this. However, the teaching ministry, we record it each week. We put it in video format and audio format. So you can watch it on YouTube or you can listen to it on whatever podcast platform you use. But that is all on our website, which is DiscipledOjo.org. And the ministry is nonprofit and it's funded entirely by donations. We are always looking for monthly donors, and the, the way you do it is by belt levels. So if you want to be a white belt donor, that's just $10 a month, right? That's less than Netflix. And um, all the way up to black belt donor, which is $100 a month, and everything in between. And then there's red belt, which is 1000 a month, which I'm still looking for one of those, but you never know. Um, but, you know, if you or your company Uh, wants to support a nonprofit ministry. We are 501c3, so it's tax-deductible. And the outreach that Disciple Dojo does is on Tuesdays. We do this every Tuesday. Teaching ministry, open to anybody. It's not just a men's Bible study. I don't know how that rumor gets spread sometimes, but look around. Um, Open to anybody in the area. And then Tuesday evenings, I go and I do a ministry called Refugee Jitsu. And that's where refugee and immigrant kids come to a place called Project 658, and I actually teach them uh, jiu self-defense, anti-bullying, women's safety, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's two m- forms of ministry that this ministry encompasses. And when people donate to Disciple Dojo, you can actually earmark which one you want it to go to. Because some people, they love the jiu-jitsu stuff, but they're not down with Jesus, because they're not Christians. But they want to support that. So they give there, they can earmark it. Other people are like, I love the Bible study, I don't care about the jiu-jitsu stuff. You can give a near market to go to the Bible study. But either way, um, really appreciate your support in order to make this happen every week. And that's the goal. We started about six years ago in the book of Genesis. Just Genesis 1.1. And we're in the book of Judges. So we've been plugging along every verse, every chapter. Um, I translate each book. I go through it chapter by chapter. We walk through it and think of this as basically I try to be your tour guide through the book. So what's the job of a tour guide? To walk you through an exhibit and point stuff out that you may not have caught or may not have recognized. Um, If there's something interesting, point it out. If there's something important, point it out. This Bible study is not tied to any church. There's people here from multiple churches. It's not tied to any denomination. It's not even tied to any theological tradition other than broadly speaking evangelical orthodox. So we've got all kinds of people here. And that's the beauty of it. We've got people that are Calvinists. We've got people that are Arminians. We've got people that are dispensationalists. We've got people that are Reformed. We've got people that are right-wingers. We've got people that are left-wingers. We've got people like me that are independents and give both of you grief. Um, we've got the spectrum. And that's how it should be because that's how it is in the Kingdom of God. Is we don't always have to agree. So, but as I teach... There, what's that? We already got the peanut gallery yelling. There, the point is everybody that comes is welcome. And we can have unity without uniformity. We can agree on the essentials and disagree on the inessentials. That being said, when we come to passages in Scripture where there is disagreement among Christians, I'm aware of this. And so I try to bring it up and I try to point out which different Christian traditions veer one way or the other. And then if I differ from any of them, I'll try to you know, tell you if that's the case. But the point is to get you into the text. That's the purpose, to get you into the text. And not like a memory verse here or a chapter there, but reading through the story of God's people together at big picture. And so you'll hear me all the time, you hear me refer back to stuff that we've already talked about in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Why? Because Judges is going to build on that stuff. Everything builds on what came before. So if you miss those, you're not out of luck. It's all available on the website. You can catch up on the podcast, 30-minute segments. You can do a whole book in like, I don't know, a couple of weeks. But the point is, you're seeing the goal of this study is to get you to stop looking at the Bible as a collection of verses or as instructions for how to have my best life or whatever you want to think of it, and to see it as the unfolding epic of God's adventure in history. God's entire story of cosmic proportions that began with everything but winds its way through a backwater colony uh, of the Roman Empire, ultimately bringing forth the Messiah in, in a stable. So the unexpected, and then from there, expanding out worldwide back to cosmic proportions. And so all along, there's twists and there's turns, and, and, but the Bible's a big-picture story. So where we are is we're in the book of Judges. And there's, it's impossible to recap everything that's led to this, but I wanna, today we just want to introduce some concepts that are going to be important as we go through Judges. Now Judges, let me tell you. Judges is the book that, man, other than Leviticus, I don't know if anybody reads Judges. Um, Judges, so few of us actually read the book of Judges. We hear the stories, everybody knows who Samson is. Everybody's seen the movies or the tail cartoons or those of you that are really old, the flannel boards. Who remembers flannel boards? Come on, I remember flannel boards and I'm 41. So, um, but, so we've heard these stories. We know people like Gideon, Deborah, Samson, Jephthah, but we don't really know them, I would suggest. We know fabulized, sanitized versions of them. But when you actually read this story, and I've spent all summer translating this book word by word from the Hebrew, looking at it in context, and I will continue to do so through this study. I just stay a few weeks ahead of you guys. Uh, But you start to see this is not a collection of heroes. These are not the hero. The hero of the book of Judges is God. The enemy The antagonist in the book of Judges, most of the time, especially as the book goes forward, is Israel. Joshua and Judges is very interesting because Joshua and Judges together form like a diptych, like a two-panel picture. And they both somewhat recapitulate the whole history of Israel. What I mean by that is Joshua is basically for the next generation, their exodus. Like they died out. They didn't experience the exodus, the generation of Joshua, because they, they were babies or either born in the wilderness. So what do you have in Joshua? You have parting of the waters. You have a destroying large armies, oppressive armies, formidable foes, even giants in their eyes. You have God delivering His people and bringing them into their own. So Joshua is like the Exodus 2.0. Judges gives a different picture because Judges is like what happened after the exodus. What happened after the exodus? The triumphant exodus with the song of Miriam and and, and getting to Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments and entering into the covenant with God and the people saying, yes we'll obey you, yes we'll obey you. What happens? Golden calf. Apostasy. A generation dying in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. See. After the celebration of the exodus and the joyous triumph in God giving them everything they needed, they went astray. And so that generation experienced what it was like to not be under God's covenant blessings, ultimately dying in the desert. Judges and Joshua kind of do the same thing, but in the land. Exodus all, and Numbers all took place outside of the land. Joshua and Judges in the land. So, Joshua, they're rescued, they're redeemed, they're saved, and that happens in the land this time for this generation. Judges, we find out, they don't live up to what God has given them. They don't do what God had told them to do politically, militarily, and most importantly, religiously. So, the whole book of Judges then is this da- some people say it's like a cycle. It's not a cycle, it's a downward spiral. It's a downward spiral. It starts picking up in Joshua where that Joshua left off. In fact, Joshua is still alive at the beginning of the book of Judges, even though he died at the end of Joshua. So there's dischronologization, which is where things aren't put in chronological order. Uh, so the author hops back to when Joshua was still alive and when the territories were still being uh, taken over. Remember, Joshua, if you were here with us last year or earlier this year, Joshua His success, the military success of Israel was basically like removing the people in power. The big Canaanite kings and the warlords and the city-states, knocking out the power bases. That's what Joshua's campaigns were. But there still had to be the going into and the taking of the land acre by acre. D-Day, V-E-Day, right? Think of World War II. D-Day, allies land, once that beach is secured, the war's over. That's the, that's the decisive moment in World War II history on that front. But you still got to save Private Ryan. You've still got to go through and, 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 and root out the nests of resistance and opposition and all of that stuff. Well, Joshua was D-Day. The Allies have landed. The Israelites have landed. They've come into the land. They've taken over. They've, they've destroyed the power bases in the north and in the south. Now, the book of Joshua ended by Joshua saying, now God's done all this for you. Now go take the land and continue, finish the work that He's called you to do and He's enabled you to do. And don't be afraid of what you see because think of what He's already done. And so that was the charge. And then Joshua died. Well, Judges picks up now in that moment, in that general time period, and it's gonna hop back into the tail end of Judges and you're gonna read again like we read about Othniel who was Caleb's younger brother, uh, Caleb's relative, brother, cousin, maybe, nephew, we don't know. But you, we're gonna read about him and that account that we already read about in Joshua of how they took the area of Hebron. And then we're gonna read about uh, the Joshua's death again. It's gonna recount that because it's giving you, it's basically the opening of Judges is catching you up to speed. It's recapping. And then the heart of the book of Judges, around chapter 3, all the way through chapter 16, is going to be this downward spiral. It's going to be a pattern, and it's going to be very distinct. You'll see it as we go along. The people are given everything. Deliverance, salvation, a charge to take the land, a charge to be God's people and live in covenant with Him. And they're going to not do it. And they're going to embrace idolatry. And that's going to be the thing that that, that characterizes the period of the Judges. It's not like Israel rejects God. This is the thing you're going to see. They never reject God. They never say Yahweh is not our God. They just make a Yahweh in their own image. Actually, in Baal's image. They take a little bit of the Canaanite spirituality and they mix it with their devotion to Yahweh. So, yeah, we worship Yahweh, but we're not going to do it at the tabernacle. We're going to do it at our town. We're not going to use the, uh, you know, the, the sacrificial system. We're going to make our own little household Yahwehs. And we're going to practice our th- There's There's this syncretism, is what it's called. And it plagues Israel. And God tells them over and over, don't do this. If you break the covenant, remember Deuteronomy. Remember Joshua. If you break the covenant, that means I will remove my protection from you. And you will experience the fruit of what it, be, what it is to live as Canaanites. If you want to be Canaanites, you will experience me treating you as Canaanites. And that's exactly what the book of Judges chronicles, is Israel's downward spiral into becoming Canaanite. And it was what Deuteronomy and Joshua both warned so strongly against. So Joshua, the book of Judges rather, becomes, until the exile of Babylon, the low point, the darkest period in human history. And so when we read the Judges, we're not reading God sending these mighty heroes in to, to deliver His people from outward oppressors because His people are great and they're just suffering innocently. No, what we're reading is God looking at a situation that's gone to chaos and saying, I'm not going to let this completely go. Astray. i'm not going to let the plan go completely off the rails because i've made a promise and so every now and then god steps in and raises up somebody who delivers and that person is called the judge now in english judge means your honor and they have a black robe and a gavel and they sit on the bench but the interesting thing in judges is none of the judges actually do any judging except the woman deborah is the only one who's actually a, what we would call a judge and a military leader. The rest of the judges are just military leaders. And most of them don't even lead a military. Jephthah, Gideon, they do some military leading. Deborah does. But a lot of the judges, some of them are just like like Ehud. He's just an assassin. And others are just people who they rally around. Samson, he doesn't do anything. He's just after his own lusts, his own desire, his own cravings. He doesn't really give a rip about Israel. Samson's one of the most misunderstood characters of all the people other than maybe jonah samson's the one who's the most mislabeled as a hero in the bible because he is pretty much the worst of all the judges and his is the last story in judges of a judge and it's the most tragic and disappointing and pitiful Uh, the only person who even comes close is Jephthah, the one right before him. So, as you go through the book, you're going to see this downward spiral of God using these people. Now, this throws some people into confusion because they go, wait a minute. I read my New Testament. I read the book of Hebrews. It gives the hall of Hebrews. And it lists Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. Well, yeah, they were examples of faith. But at this point, faith is a spark in the dark. And their faith is not... Anything to, they're, they're, let me put it this way. What the Hall of Hebrews wants to be emulated is their trust in God during dire circumstances. Not their life example. They're, they're held up as, virtue, as, as symbols of faith only for very specific purposes. They had faith. By, if you read the section in Hebrews, it says, by faith God did this. By faith they did this. By faith this happened. And it's true, by faith. And he says, and there's, I don't even have time to tell you of all the others. And he rings off a few of the names of the judges. And the point is yes, there was faith involved, but it was not a, a, a stamp of approval for their character or their life in general. I mean, even King Saul did great things at the beginning. So we have to be careful of that, of of lionizing these judges as all being paragons of virtue. Yes, God raised them up. Yes, they led the people. Yes, there are things in their lives that we can see that are worth emulating, but there are way more things in their lives that are put there as negatives, what not to do, as a warning of how not to be. And so during this time, what's going on, and we'll talk maybe a little more about this next week, but... What's happened is, so it's, it's a, a, a generation or two after Israel has left Egypt. Egypt is still a superpower. I mean, other than Israel leaving, it's not like Egypt was annihilated. So Egypt is still the superpower. This is maybe in the 1200s BC, 1400, 1300, 1200s, all the way up to 1000 BC. 1000 BC is King Saul, King David time, roughly. These are ballpark figures. Um, so we're in that period of about 1400, some scholars would say 1200, that's a debate based on when the Exodus happened, it doesn't really matter for this purpose, but we're in that period between the Exodus and Israel becoming a monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. And so that period of time was very chaotic, Israel's entering into the land, and at that time the land was dominated, as we've seen last, this, earlier this year in Joshua, by these city-states. That each had their own king. The word king in the Bible just it can mean anything from like King Solomon or Pharaoh to a guy that owns this little city state on a hill and calls himself king. It's just a title for big man, for ruler, for chief. And so Canaan is dominated by these kings that are vying for power. And we know this because of the Amarna letters, which is like 300 clay tablets that were discovered, that were unearthed with correspondences between these different kings and Egypt, asking Egypt to protect them from each other, like Egypt, big brother, hey, he's being bad, come swat him down, right? Calling on Egypt to come do some discipline. And also asking for protection against different groups of people that are kind of wild, that don't really fit into any of their city-states. And they called them the Hapiru. And these Hapiru, some people earlier generations said, that's the same as Hebrew. He's talking about the Hebrews that are coming in. Not really. Apiru is probably more likely a general term that just kind of means like what we would call barbarian or, or wild person or uh, savage or some, just, just wanderer, nomad. But that would have described the Hebrews as well under Joshua coming in. So it's this time that everything's chaotic and everything is up in the air. And the reoccurring verse that you're going to hear over and over in Judges is, at that time, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was upright in their own eyes. And so it's this anarchy. It's this chaotic time. There's no real leadership other than these judges that get raised up. So the book is going to begin. This is big picture stuff. We'll get into the details next week, but big picture stuff. The book begins with two chapters that are two interludes or two uh, introductions. One shows Israel's military failure. The next one shows Israel's religious failure. Then you have the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 16, that give the the downward spiral. And then the book ends, chapters 17 through 21, like it began with an inverse section. You have a section about Israel's religious failures, and then bookending it, you have the final chapters about Israel's political military failure. And so there's a pattern, a structure to the book where it starts one way and it ends looking back. So it's not haphazard. It's not random. When you read the end of Judges, I just translated it this weekend, the last few chapters are the most sickening chapters in the Old Testament, by far. And nothing good is going to happen in them. Nothing to be emulated. Nothing of virtue is going to happen. And the book of Judges is going to end leaving the reader going, when will a king or someone rise up that will make sense of all this mess? And then there's going to be a little interlude with the book of Ruth about something that happens during this time period of the Judges that will give rise to exactly that. The king who will come and actually bring some order to Israel. So Judges is, is looking back from Joshua, but it's a bridge to the books of Kings and Chronicles. You know, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. And so that's where we find ourselves when we're reading this story. So I want, I'm, I'm emphasizing these things because these are the things that... Remember, when you're reading books in the Bible, chapters and verses didn't exist. Chapters and verses are all artificial. They were added in the 1200s chapters and in the 1500s verses. So what you're reading when you're you you should read the book of Judges not verse by verse, chapter by chapter, chapter here, verse here, but the flow of the story, the flow of the narrative, and when you do that, it takes on a whole different meaning than when you just read these little Veggie Tale episodes, right? When you try to cut out a little Sunday school lesson here, because it disconnects those people from the sweep of the story. And if you don't see that Jephthah is at near the bottom of this downward spiral, then you may read it one way. If you don't read that Samson is the bottom of that downward spiral, then you may read it one way. Whereas Deborah or Othniel, they're near the top. They're actually right and good judges. And so you see this, this pattern of judges that are pretty much good and upright, and then over time, they become more mixed. And over time, at the end, they can barely do anything right. And when they do, it's God using them in spite of their disobedience or foolishness. So that's what we are reading as we're going through the book of Judges. Uh, one last point that I'll make. Well, a couple of points real quick that are worth mentioning. As you're reading Judges, remember you're reading Israel's covenant history. But it's not just history like we write history. And it's not even history like the books of Samuel, Kings, or Chronicles writes history. Judges is a stylized history. So it's written primarily literarily rather than historiography. Historiography is is just the facts, ma'am. Who, what, when, where, why. That's all we want to know. Not even why, who, what, when, where. We'll let you figure out why. Just the facts, just the facts. That's history. That's obviously there's more to history than that. And I know there are historians in this room, so I'm speaking in generalities, of course. But history is meant to be just tell me what happened. Judges is is not just that. Judges is in the Hebrew Bible. Judges. See, the English Bibles, we have the Torah, then we have the historical books. That's how they're labeled in English Bibles. And so that gives us the impression, oh, this is the history of Israel. You know, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Esther. Those are the historical books. And that's how they're grouped in our English Bibles, which comes from the Greek translations back during the time of Jesus. But in the Hebrew Bible, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, they're grouped as the former prophets. And then there's the other prophets, the major and the minor prophets. But in the Hebrew Bible, Judges is part of the prophets. And as such, that means it's not just rote history. If it were just history like Chronicles, it'd be in the writings section of the Hebrew Bible. It's not. It's in the prophets. Which means that it's like history as a sermon, not history as just what happened. So there are things in Judges that are stylistic. There are things that are out of order chronologically. It'll tell an event that will jump back in and tell another part of the event. Or then it'll jump back and tell something that happened at another time. The reigns of the judges overlap. You, you can't just lay them out chronologically. Because the judges, it's not like Israel was united at this time. Some judges focused in the eastern part of the, uh, the country. Some were up north. Some were in the south. Some were in the west. And, and they were during times when there were overlapping enemies. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Philistines, they, it's not like they just stood in a line and waited to oppress Israel. There was different oppression going on. So there's a lot, it's a lot more fluid and malleable than just a rote history would lead you to believe. So keep that in mind. It's important. The other reason it's important is because Judges has been terribly misused, like the book of Joshua, in Christian history. I'll give you an example. In in, uh, American history, the Puritans, Cotton Mather, famous Puritan preacher, preached from Joshua and Judges particularly as, hey, we are the new Israel colonists. Those savages who don't worship our God, American Indians, natives, they are the Canaanites. So sermons would be preached to colonial soldiers, putting them in the place of Israel, giving them charge to exterminate and drive out Native Americans. That's just a fact of history. You can look up Cotton Mather sermons and Puritan sermons that call for this, that flat out say, we are the new Israel, these are the new Canaanites, do what God says and wipe them out. Total misuse of the book. Complete misuse of the book. Because it was descriptive, not prescriptive in terms of God calling. Remember, the Canaanites were being judged at a particular moment in time for a particular sins that they had been committed so that Israel would be entering the land and they would be judged. And Israel was judged just like the Canaanites were. So I mention it because it's something that Christians, a lot of us may not be aware of, but it's a dark chapter in our history and we need to face it. There's going to be a lot of darkness throughout this study. I've said on Instagram, if you follow me, and on Facebook, uh, Judges makes Game of Thrones look like Sesame Street. I mean, just the violence, the intrigue, the, the, the evil, the sexuality. I mean, this is, this is an R-rated book if it were made into a movie. By far. Um, and yet, what does it possibly have to say to us today? And why would God allow something this grotesque in his scriptures? Well, I'm going to end with a quote from a friend of mine. Daniel Block, I spent an afternoon with him up in Wheaton one time when I was looking into PhD work, and he wrote his commentary on Judges and Ruth. I highly recommend this commentary in particular, by the way, if you're looking for something to read as we walk through together. But in his section on the relevance of the book of Judges today, and we'll end with this, he says, Hebrews 11.32 has exercised a profound and pervasive influence on the history of Christian interpretation of the book of Judges. With a hermeneutic that tends to read the Old Testament in light of the New, to this day many readers understand the book as a collection of stirring tales of the exploits of genuinely virtuous heroes, mighty men of God. These personalities are held up as models after whom Christians should pattern their lives. It's indeed true that all believers are called to live a life of faith and that faith without faith nothing can accomplish for God, but this evaluation of the primary judges at least is much too positive, especially when we allow the author of Judges to speak for himself. The primary significance of the book for the modern reader, especially Western Christians, lies in a different direction. Here's the key. Earlier, talking about earlier in the commentary, it was mentioned that the central theme of the book of Judges is the canonization of Israel. Herein lies the key to the relevance of this ancient composition for North American Christianity. For like the Israelites of the settlement period, we have largely forgotten the covenant Lord and have come to take for granted His gracious redemptive work on our behalf. Like the ancient Israelites, we too are being squeezed into the mold of the pagan world around us. Evidences of the, quote, canonization of the church are everywhere. Our preoccupation with material prosperity, which turns Christianity into a fertility religion our syncretistic and aberrant forms of worship, our refusal to obey the Lord's call of separation from the world, our divisiveness and competitiveness, our moral compromises as a result of which Christians and non-Christians are often indistinguishable, our male exploitation and abuse of women and children, our reluctance to answer the Lord's call to service, and when we finally go, our propensity to displace, thy kingdom come with my kingdom come. Our eagerness to fight the Lord's battles with the world's resources and strategies, yikes. Our willingness to stand up and defend perpetrators of evil instead of justice. These and many other lessons will be drawn from the leaves of this fascinating book as we proceed. And that is the key of what we're going to look at over these next few months as we go through judges, is we're going to see what it has to say to us, not by the judges being heroes that we all emulate but by God working even in such a mixed-up, downward-spiraling culture to bring redemption. Because He stays true to His nature even when His people don't. And there's lessons in that for us today. But we are two minutes over. Yikes! we got to go... Have a great week. Come back next week. We're going to kick it off. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast or the YouTube version, uh, go to Stitcher, go to SoundCloud, go to iTunes, go to YouTube, subscribe. Even if you don't listen, just subscribe. It helps me out. Um, And tell your friends. I'm going to have some cards here that have information about this study. I'm going to put them right here on the table. Grab some. Take it with you. Invite people to come with you next time. All right? Looking forward to it. Everybody have a great week.